Thank you, Bob. It would be good to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage together. And it is a deeply confronting and personal passage, isn't it? Because we all have parents. Uh, Many of us have raised children. And many of us are in the midst of raising children right now. And because it's so personal, I think we're particularly sensitive to anything that feels like criticism. I mean, let's face it, it's hard enough to be a husband or a wife or a parent without feeling like you're being judged by others. And when it comes to our own upbringing, it's okay for me to be critical about my parents, but we get very defensive if someone else says exactly the same thing. I've got permission, they're my parents, but you don't. And when we feel judged, our most natural reaction is to go one of two ways. Either we get angry and defensive and justify why our actions are right, uh, or we go the other way and we become overwhelmed with grief and remorse and a sense of guilt at what we have done or what we have failed to do. But there is a third option, and I want us to keep this in mind as we, as we come to this passage. And that is uh, to recognise that when someone comes to us and challenges us, they come uh, with uh, an intention for our good, that we start with that presumption. And then we weigh up what they are saying and ask whether what they're saying is justified. Is it a fair criticism? Is it a fair rebuke? And if it is, and there are things where we need to repent, then we repent. And we do so knowing that God is gracious and good, and where there is forgiveness, there is also freedom. And we should also be confident that if if God is willing to forgive us for our sin and our failures, then we should be confident that we are also forgiven in this room. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we should love each other enough to challenge our choices and decisions. But we do it from a position of humility. We do it recognising that we all have our own issues, we all have our own sins, And so we come with the same attitude and mindset that God shows us. So we come with an attitude of grace, desiring the good of the other person. And if you're here today and you're you're listening to this passage and you're not a Christian, then I hope it gives you an insight into the Christian life, that there is nothing out of bounds. That when God calls us into his family, he calls every part of us into his family, even our most intimate relationships. Because nothing should stand in the way and hinder our love for Christ. I'm acutely aware as we look at this passage that I'm potentially going to offend people here. So can I ask you today that if I do offend you, then come and talk to me about it and let's talk it through. And if this passage raises few issues about your past or present and you want to talk that through, then I'm more than happy to talk. 
And if you're a woman and you prefer to talk to a woman, then my wife Sarah is more than happy to talk as well. But it is a tough passage. Uh, There are some big challenges in front of us. So let me pray uh, that I can speak wisely and faithfully to God's word. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you uh, that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you are clear. Lord, I pray that I will proclaim your word faithfully today. Uh, Lord, help each of us uh, to recognize uh, how you have created marriage, what you want for us in our marriages and what you want for our children, that we might, as your people, honor you in everything that we do. Amen. So, Bible's open. Our passage begins with Malachi reminding Judah of the unity they share together with one another. So, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not God create us? Why do we profane the covenants of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And so, notice the unfaithfulness here is not directed to God, although they are being unfaithful to God, but it's directed to their unfaithfulness to each other. So they are supposed to be God's chosen people standing shoulder to shoulder, set apart from the nations around them. But one by one, people make individual choices and they give in to the temptations of life and the world around them and that unity is fracturing. So as individuals decide to marry foreign women who follow foreign gods, as people make those individual choices, that impacts the whole of society. And so what starts off as an exception of one becomes normal for everyone. And that's really the problem of our culture and individualistic thinking, that we're so busy looking at ourselves and what we want, that we we don't recognise the implications that our choices have on others. And this wasn't simply a case of being naive, that they didn't know any better. So in Deuteronomy, just before they enter the promised land, so this is way earlier, this is what is said to them. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So God's people, and particularly in this case the men, knew what God expected of them. And yet they've chosen to completely ignore it. So that they come into the temple claiming to worship God, bringing their offerings, and then wonder why God isn't pleased with them and wondering why God isn't blessing them for what they're doing. It's the worst type of religion. All religious practice, but there's actually no obedience, no love for God. And Malachi's verdict against the men of Judah is brutal. So verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So their action will have consequences, not just for them, but for the generations to come. So if they choose to forsake their identity of who God has created them to be, then the future descendants 
will no longer share in God's blessing. They will no longer be called the people of God. So what does that mean for us as Christians? So we're no longer, we're not Israel. Uh, We're not uh, bound and under the Old Testament law. We are certainly uh, part of God's promise to Abraham. But how does this apply to us? And to work that out, what we need to do is go and look at the New Testament and look at what Jesus has to say and what the other New Testament writers have to say about what principles continue to be true for us. What does the New Testament affirm about who we should marry? I think there are two passages in particular that are helpful. So the first is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. This is what it says. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteous and wicked have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So the passage doesn't uh, specifically mention marriage. Uh, It's a general principle and we see it's a principle that's consistent with the Old Testament. But we can see how the principle applies quite easily to marriage, can't we? So a a yoke was a a big bit of wood that gets put between usually two oxen, right? Which was very handy for helping them walk in the same direction if you want to plough a field or, you know, pull a cart, something like that. And it's quite a good metaphor for marriage. You know, two people uh, walking together in the same direction, interdependent and greater than the sum of its parts. That's a pretty good description of marriage, isn't it? Or at least what a marriage should be. And if we are Christians, then our direction is firmly fixed on following Jesus. The second passage that I think is helpful is 1 Corinthians 7, which says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. So if the principle is established in the first passage, then we get a specific example in the second passage. And if the principle is true for a widow remarrying, then it's equally true for someone who's getting married for the first time. So if you are a Christian in the dating phase of life, then can I encourage you with the same force as Scripture to yoke yourself with an ox that loves Jesus as much as you do. And that means you need to make a conscious decision about where you set your affections. Because we all know how our emotions work. Our affections turn to desire, desire, love. And once we've got love, it's hard to turn away. It doesn't matter how rational or irrational our choices are. Love seems to fixate our perspective. And so can I encourage you to turn your affections to someone who is a Christian. Have obedience for God, but also do it for your own sake. Because you'll discover over time that there is a great joy in sharing your faith with the person you love. And it's great to have someone who will encourage you And it's a joy to have someone who will encourage you to put Christ first in your life. Don't date 
someone with the hope they will become a Christian. Particularly amongst our young people, it seems like such a good idea at the time. But uh, when we date people, it's about looking for a partner, not a project. If you are married to someone who is not a Christian, and I think this is where it gets more difficult, because I know that this passage is difficult, and perhaps what I've just said is offensive. For some, uh, you were a Christian when you got married, uh, and you knew and you loved someone who who isn't a Christian. Uh, For others, you thought you were marrying a Christian, but since uh, they've turned their back on the faith they once professed. And for others still, uh, you weren't a Christian when you got married, they weren't a Christian when you got married, and so the whole thing was irrelevant. Whatever your circumstances when you started, in the present, love the person you married. You've made promises before God, and now live out wherever you are, whatever the circumstances, honouring God in it. I think Paul's words are helpful from 1 Corinthians 7. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. And if there is an issue of past sin, then like all past sin, we acknowledge it before God, we repent, and we know that Christ has paid the price for our sin. So we no longer live under guilt, And we now live freely to honour him. Our second point, unfaithful to their marriage. So the men of Judah have been unfaithful to God in who they marry. And they've been unfaithful to God in their marriages as they seek divorce. So verses 13 and 14 in your passage. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. A covenant simply means a promise. And God's expectation of his people is that we will do everything in our power to keep the promises we make. Promises are not statements of intent. They're not subject to change because our feelings change or because our marriage doesn't live up to that wonderful expectation we had on our wedding day. Love is intoxicating. But for anyone who's been married for a while, you know that that feeling does wear off. And when that happens, then it starts to become more about commitment and hard work. But it is good. So our individualistic culture says, do whatever makes you happy. If your marriage is making you happy, then great, stay in it. But if it isn't, then why bother persevering? Why waste your life trying to make a dead horse jump? You know, call it quits and find something better. And of course, the promise is that the grass is always greener. It doesn't matter what you have. The grass is always greener just on the other side. That's the world's way of thinking. 
But that's not God's way of thinking and it shouldn't be our way of thinking. So this is how Jesus talks about marriage and divorce from our passage this morning. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they will no longer They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So God has created something unique in marriage. Joined together by God with two people becoming one flesh. And it really is something unique and wonderful, isn't it? That we get to share life together, both the joys and the challenges, the successes the disappointments. It's a safe place to be vulnerable and to be honest. And it's a place where we should feel secure. And it's the right place to be sexually intimate. And marriage is one of the great gifts, not just to us as individuals who are in it, but to our society. It is the great stabiliser of our society. And if you look around at the moment, and there was a really interesting study uh, done in 2011 called For Kids' Sake, when you look at the, the correlation between family breakdown and where our young people are at, it is really disturbing because our individual choices have implications for our children and for our society. And so God wants us to take our marriage commitment seriously. If you got married in an Anglican church, this is what you promised or something very similar. The minister stood up and said, will you take, this is to the blokes, to be your wife, to live together according to God's law, will you give her the honour due to her as your wife and forsaking all others, love and protect her as long as you both shall live? To which you replied, I will. That is how it should be. That is how God created it to be. But we also know that that is not always reality. And therefore, God in his mercy does provide a last resort concession in divorce. So in situations where one, the other person has willfully withdrawn from the marriage, there are legitimate grounds for divorce to protect the wronged person and to ensure they aren't left materially or relationally destitute. But that's not this passage. This passage is about selfishness and sin and broken promises. God doesn't simply hate divorce. He hates the actions and the sin that make divorce the only safe option left. So God's anger is not simply at the initiator of divorce, but at the perpetrator. And in this case, in this passage, the initiator and the perpetrator is the same person. It's the men of Israel. But the message is clear. God expects us to be faithful to our promises. So let me offer four things that I think are helpful for a healthy marriage. Number one, 
We need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Because it's only when we understand who we are before God that we can understand how to best relate to the person we love and how to honour them and give God glory in our marriage. So we need to keep listening to God's word. We need to keep praying that God, in his mercy, will mould us by his spirit to be more like him. Secondly, we need to love sacrificially. And love seeks the good and the godliness of the other person. And a marriage works best when both parties are more focused on the other person than themselves. So let me ask you, how does your spouse, for those who are married, how does your spouse like to be loved? Which is not the same as how you like to be loved. And it's not the same as how you like to express love. You might too love to give flowers. She might go, actually, I prefer you to vacuum the house and take me out to dinner. But how do you love your other person the way they want to be loved? And when it comes to sex, let me quote Paul. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That's not an invitation to be abusive or demanding. It's an invitation to self-willingly choose to give your body uh, as a generous offering to the other person, about giving to the other person. Number three, be wise in how you speak to one another. Marriage is hard when you feel criticised or corrected. Marriage is hard when the other person, uh, when you feel like the other person doesn't trust you or is constantly undermining your confidence and your ability. On the other hand, marriage is a lot easier and a lot better when you feel supported and affirmed and appreciated. So let's be generous with our words. And number four, Don't place yourself in situations where you are tempted to be unfaithful. Most people don't set out to have an affair. But bit by bit, uh, bonds are made, inhibitions are broken down, and finally a line is crossed. And no one sees uh, the implications of their choices, but afterwards they are devastating. And I think for most of us who have seen that play out, we've seen just how devastating it is and just how far-reaching it is. So verse 15, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And verse 15 also gives us at least one good reason for why this is so important. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So God has brought this union together. It should glorify and honor him, but it should also raise up the next generation, the next generation who will share in God's blessing, who will enjoy God forever. I appreciate most parents don't feel like you have any great influence on your children, particularly once they hit their teenage years. But it's not true. Head and shoulders, by far, 
You are the most significant influence in their lives. And the stability of the family unit will either help or hinder them as they come to know and understand and follow Jesus. So two parents who love Jesus and love each other are more likely to see their kids come to Christ and own their faith. That's the message of this passage. That godly families are there to produce godly children. It's not a guarantee. That's not always possible. Uh, Certainly from my experience, uh, my uh, dad left in my early teens. And so I didn't have that family unit uh, that, that God is talking about here. And one of the great blessings of the church is that we have a family that's bigger than simply our biological family. And one of the, the great things that God provided for me was godly older men uh, who could lead me uh, in understanding what it meant to be a Christian man. You know, so often we come to church and we think it's all about me and what I get out of it. But actually, every week you bring so much to other people because that's what a family does, sometimes actively, uh, sometimes tacitly just in our life together. But it was the family, it was my church family, perhaps more than any other, that shaped me coming to Christ and continuing in my faith. That, and I had a very, very prayerful mother. So for those who are starting out with your families, can I encourage you, love your husband or love your wife. Put them first and you will look after your kids. Look after your marriage, you'll be looking after your kids. Neglect your marriage, you will be neglecting your kids. Secondly, can I encourage you to prioritise raising your kids for Christ over our desire and the pressure to give them every opportunity. There are no eternal consequences if your kid cannot catch a ball, play soccer or dance. There are bigger things at stake. Usually with a bit of planning, you can fit a bit of both. But put Christ first in your family. And for those who feel your children have already turned their back on Jesus, then can I encourage you to continue to pray for God's mercy. It ain't over till it's over. And you never know who God's going to bring in their life and what he is going to do. So pray like your life depended on it. Keep being a godly model to your kids, no matter how old they are, and keep talking about Jesus. Keep taking every opportunity that you can possibly take. Because you just don't know. You know, Despite all of our inadequacies, God is bigger than that. And so let's pray that God is merciful. Our families have such a massive influence on our lives for better and for worse. And for husbands and wives in this context, the message is do everything in your power to make godly and wise choices for yourself as well as for the sake of your spouse as well as for the sake of your children. We can't control everything in life. But we pray that with God's strength, with his guidance that we will seek to serve him faithfully in whatever we do.
You know, this passage is not about looking back with regret. If that's all I've communicated today, then I really have failed. Absolutely, we should learn from the the history of Judah. Uh, We should learn from our own past and our own experience. But primarily it's about looking forward and asking how do we aspire to be godly where we are in the present? And how do we aspire to be godly going forward? And absolutely, repent where we need to repent. But keep looking to Jesus and saying, how do I honour God in my marriage and with my kids? Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for family. Uh, We thank you for marriages, uh, for all uh, the joys and challenges that go with it. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for our Christian community here that we will seek to honour God in our marriages and we will seek to raise our children uh, to know and to love you. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all things. So, Lord, I pray that you guide our efforts and in your mercy you help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. Amen.